0: To Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen.
1: Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belabored Number 77. So, this week we're going to talk about the universal basic income. What is it? How do we get it? How much are we talking about here? And we're going to be talking with Katie Sipp of Hack the Union. But first, the news. So you might have read Sarah Maslin Near's New York Times expose talking about the horrific conditions and health threats and wage and hour abuses that have been imposed on women working in the nail salon industry in New York. You might have felt a pang of guilt, wondered what you as a consumer maybe can do about it. Um, and there are actually ways to help this ultra-vulnerable workforce that don't involve you know, waging a one-person boycott against your manicurist because that's actually the worst thing you could possibly do. Um, so Sarah and I have been looking up resources uh, this past week um, and thinking of ways that uh, ordinary folks can reach out and maybe you know, help improve the conditions or at least build awareness of what's going on with uh, this industry. So um, first, you can get involved with a campaign that is springing up in New York called the New York Healthy Salons Coalition. It is run by a bunch of community and labor groups in collaboration with public advocate Letitia James, and is aiming to raise standards in the industry through a combination of legislation and public advocacy. Um, for instance, they're working to put together a Healthy Salons Incentive Certification Program to encourage employers to use best practices in the industry. Um, they're also looking to tighten licensing regulations. And a group called Adikar, which uh, advocates for workers in the Nepali community, has been working on a rather beautiful campaign, actually, to um, distribute media materials that involve know-your-rights materials for workers as well as tips for consumers on how they can make their manicure more ethical and healthier and uh, more equitable for both the workers and the consumers. And we are going to hear a clip now from, and this is uh, Luna Ranjit of Adhikar talking about the effort that she's implementing with the Center for Urban Pedagogy.
2: The reason we wanted to uh, do something graphical was um, because a lot of our members are semi-literate and, and therefore on uh, health and safety issues and many of the things are so like technical and complicated. And so we're like, it would be wonderful if we could create something that's easy to understand. And we went and... Thinking mostly about like how can we make it useful for our members, uh, but then we thought like it would actually be better if we could use it as customers as well as salon workers, and also thinking beyond just Nepali uh, you now salon workers. So that's why we decided to incorporate the same issue from two different perspectives: nails salon workers and customers but most of the material is targeted to workers and also it's uh, we translated into five different languages
1: you know you're working with tish james and stuff i mean is there an initiative now to maybe get harsher regulation and is there also a concern maybe that the workers might be wary of maybe like labor inspectors and stuff maybe they're afraid that the shop will get closed down and they'll lose their jobs um you know how do you deal with that
2: yeah, I mean it is a delicate balance, uh, uh, but uh, the most of the uh, regulation for nail salon is controlled by the state. So therefore, it's very difficult to do much at the city level. Um, a, a bill in the city council is really looking at a voluntary program where the salons can get certified as healthy salons, but. We are asking for that certification to be available, not just because they have, like, quote-unquote, like, green so on but also that they have no wage violations. So we're trying to, like, redefine what is healthy, and that's part of the legislation. And, and we're also, I mean, exploring the Department of Health to see if it can create regulations through Department of Health and making it into a public health issue.
0: Last week, a federal appeals court judge heard arguments in Home Care Association v. Wheel, the lawsuit that held up the Obama administration's move to extend wage and hour protection to some 2 million home care workers who had previously been exempted from them. These workers for decades were defined as simply companions, not real workers, and therefore not deserving of making even a skimpy federal minimum wage. The vast majority of the workers who would have been covered by this rule are employed by third-party agencies, some of which, when they aren't arguing that they simply can't pay $7.25 an hour to their employees, like to brag about their profits and successful franchise model. The lawsuit was brought in part by the International Franchise Association, perhaps best known for suing to try to stop the $15 an hour minimum wage in Seattle. The Franchise Association represents both franchisors, the companies like McDonald's or Brightstar, a home care chain, as well as the individual franchisees, and on its board is Shelly Sun, who is the owner of Brightstar and a promoter of the franchise model that has apparently made her wealthy. She is also an author, a motivational speaker, and was once a guest on that show, Undercover. Our boss. One would think that a successful money-making franchise would not have a leg to stand on when it comes to complaining about minimum wage protections, but apparently one would be wrong. The arguments in this case come down to the same old arguments we're used to hearing about home care workers, that their clients will suffer if they're paid decently, that if they don't suck it up and work for less than minimum wage, they'll be responsible for pushing elderly and disabled people into institutions. But if for-profit business owners can't find a way to pay their workers a decent wage, maybe it's their business model that's the problem.
1: Well, we were going to report on a stunning defeat that the Senate Democrats dealt the Obama administration by thwarting fast-track authority in the Senate. But unfortunately, just as we were about to record, they ended up backtracking and caving and agreeing to uh, let the fast-track authority bill through. So uh, the next phase in the Trans-Pacific Partnership deal uh, is that uh, it looks more and more like uh, Congress is moving towards granting fast-track authority. Authority to the Obama administration, which, as we 've reported before, will grant uh, the executive branch virtually unilateral power to negotiate the trade deal on his own and then send it back to Congress for a straight. Up or down vote. There had been mounting opposition among the Senate Democrats based on uh, their desire to have certain uh, trade protections built into the bill, such as protections for displaced workers, uh, measures to address uh, what they call currency manipulation by other countries, which, um, you know, undermine uh, some of the so-called free trade uh, initiatives that are embedded in the bill. And it would also um, address, you know, little things like, oh, child labor and export supply chains and, you know, like extraneous, extraneous things like that, you know. But (laughs) thankfully, all that has been swept out of the way. So now we can just cut straight to the chase. Um, so they decided to excise some of those um, measures that they had tacked on earlier, hoping to shove the whole package through. Um, and now it's virtually unconditional, uh, this fast-track trade uh, bill that's currently wending its way through Congress. And if it goes through, then um, that leaves the Senate Democrats with no choice but to separately pursue legislation that will independently address things like currency manipulation, displaced workers, and all sorts of you know uh, labor or human rights protections. Um, As we've discussed before, and you can go back to Belabor number 73, where we talked to Celeste Drake of the AFL-CIO about the more insidious aspects of this trade deal, but suffice it to say, it would grant unbridled corporate power to multinationals in 12 Pacific Rim countries, and allow them to uh, embark on a full-scale deregulatory agenda that covers about 40% of uh, global trade for the U.S. So, something to look forward to. Stay Tuned.
0: Wonderful. Everything yes. is uh, That great. moment of euphoria where we thought. That we moment could that we thought. Yeah, I saw somebody tweet, Welcome back, Senate Democrats. Yeah. <laughs> So from the U.S. Senate to the Missouri State Senate, um, there is a battle going on in the Missouri State Legislature this week over a so-called right to work bill, which we've discussed them on this show many times. They allow workers to get the protection of a union without having to pay representation costs if they are at a union workplace but don't want to be members of the union. The Republican dominated state Senate used a rare procedural motion to shut down debate after Democrats filibustered the bill for eight hours this um, past Tuesday and they passed the legislation 21 to 13. In return, the Democrats are vowing to shut everything else down until the legislative session is over. Don't really know what that does other than probably hold up some Republican priorities. Um, Missouri listeners, please fill us in. The House had passed a similar right-to-work bill by a vote of 91 to 64. Uh, So far, it seems both chambers are short of the numbers required to override an expected veto from Democratic Governor Jay Nixon, who had put out a statement saying in part that the bill would lower wages, make it harder for middle-class families to move up the economic ladder, quote, at a time when our economy is picking up steam and businesses are creating good jobs, this so-called right-to-work bill would take Missouri backwards, Nixon said. Republicans, meanwhile, are, are making noises, threats, something that they might be able to override the governor's veto after all. Um, but it's worth noting, I guess, that Missourians have been fighting this kind of measure for decades. One reporter found a member of Communications Workers of America Union who remembered going door to door with his father back in 1978 to fight a similar bill. Depressingly, there's been very little coverage outside of local Missouri press on this subject, especially since the national press spent so much time in Missouri this year in response to the protests over the shooting of Michael Brown. Um, One would hope that at least a few reporters can see the connection between bills that would lower wages and working conditions for Missourians and the already abysmal conditions that a lot of Missourians already live in. Anyway, we will keep you posted. Um, I know we have some Missouri listeners out there, so feel free to drop us a line. Give us more information. Thank you. Hashtag belabored. Hashtag belabored or belabored at dissentmagazine.org. Indeed is a universal basic income. What would it do? Why should labor people support it? Why are parties like Podemos in Spain possibly putting it forward as part of their platform? We, this week, are going to hear about some of those issues and our inevitable robot overlords from Katie Sipp, who is the editor of the Hack the Union blog and purveyor of the best newsletter out there if you care about labor, unions, organizing, and the aforementioned robots. Welcome, Katie. So Katie, what is the universal basic income?
3: Uh, universal basic income is basically a sort of theory where people in a, a country or uh, citizens or residents of a country receive money from a government or some other kind of public institution that is, you know it, it's universal. So it do, it doesn't matter if you're a kid under the age of eighteen. It doesn't matter if you're in the workforce or out of the workforce or a retiree. But that you know the sort of theory is everyone should at least be starting with some like minimal level of income or basic income.
0: So you've been a labor organizer and in the labor movement for a long time. How did you first get interested in basic income as a policy and why should labor organizers support it?
3: Um, I started to do some research really about the, the sort of future of work. And that was what led me to do some more reading about basic income. I I will say that I started, Uh, in addition to being a labor organizer, I have also done um, some organizing with, during the the sort of period of time of great welfare reform in this country, I did organizing with women who are being, you know, sort of told by the government, you have to move from welfare into work. Um, And so I sort of first became aware of this concept through the like activism of folks who were involved with the wages for housework campaign, which was a campaign to basically say, you know, women's labor is historically underrepresented by the traditional methods of, you know, deciding what kind of economic activity we have going on. So it, you know, for, for folks who are like me, who like me are a parent, you know, that like raising other humans is actual work, but we don't typically credit that work as, or we don't pay people to do that work. So, so the sort of campaign for wages for housework was to say, look, there is economic value from raising other humans. Why don't we recognize that that work has value and pay for it? So th- that's sort of how I first heard about it. But then more recently in doing research on sort of the future of work and where jobs in this country are going, I got interested in thinking about universal basic income too as a way to deal with the fact that, you know, we all might not need to work 40 hours a week anymore because of the increases in productivity that have happened.
1: Are, are there any examples you can point to of UBI being in, uh, universal basic income, everyone? for that, That's the acronym. Um, of it being implemented in the real world or maybe something that approximates it that you can point to as maybe like a concrete example of how this might work? The U.S. example I think that people talk about the most is
3: in Alaska, where basically every Alaskan gets a payout every year from the state from income that the state receives from oil money. And they don't they don't call it universal basic income. They uh, it has some other name. I can't remember what it is off the top of my head. But they essentially are saying, you know, universal
1: freedom income, I
3: think (laughs) something like that, right, (laughs) that, you know, the oil that is uh, pumped out of the earth in Alaska technically belongs to every Alaskan and that every Alaskan should you know benefit from the profits that that oil creates there have also been some other places where people have run experiments there was a an experiment in the 1970s where in Canada they did a, an experiment with this thing called mincome which was like let's pay folks who are new moms or teenagers I think that one was not a uh, a universal basic income because obviously it wasn't universal. It applied only to sort of specific categories of people. But they did run this experiment to sort of see, you know, does it incentivize these folks to go to work because then they can earn slightly more or is it a a disincentive? Because one of the arguments against basic income is that, you know, it keeps people from working because then why would you go to work if you're just going to collect a check from the government?
1: In those examples, um, or maybe you know, in theory, how does UBI as a concept kind of get promulgated in a society? Like, how does it take root? Do people wake up one day and decide, "Hey, this would be cool"? Is it done through kind of an organic social consensus? Is it done by like legislative decree? Um, you know, how how does this actually start? I mean, I'm not an expert on every place that
3: has ever talked about it, but my overwhelming sense is that it comes from sort of policy people or legislators. There are examples of places where, you know, sort of a popular political party has said, you know, this is a part of our platform. I would kind of lump that into the category, though, of like legislative or policy people making that recommendation. So Podemos, for example, I think recently included a plank in their platform about universal basic income.
0: So why do you think we're seeing renewed interest in basic income at this particular time in sort of um, global and, and U.S. history? Is it going to save us from our inevitable robot overlords, Katie?
3: I mean... Yes. And (laughs) I, you know, I personally am a fan of our robot overlords. If it frees people from the need to do work that is boring, deeply unpleasant, uh, objectionable for some other reason, because I think that for the most part, you know, people aren't hanging on to jobs because they're like, oh, I love my job, you know, making flipping burgers so much it's it's the theory that if i don't have this job flipping burgers or if i don't have this job you know making widget x in a factory then i won't be able to uh support my family that scares people about the increasing in you know sort of encroachment of technology i as you said you know worked as a labor organizer and spent the sort of largest amount of time in the end of my career doing work with healthcare workers and you know i experienced a lot of conversations with nurses and nursing home workers about stuff like Hoyer lifts, which are basically a machine that helps you lift a patient out of bed. Now, on the face of it, that seems like a good thing. And most healthcare workers are like, uh, if I can have fewer back injuries in my career as a healthcare worker, because I have a machine that's helping me lift up a patient that weighs twice as much as I do, that's great. I'm happy that I'm not getting injured on the job and that I have technology that can make my life easier. What makes them unhappy is when employers use that technology to like reduce the number of staff. And so they might have the machine to help them lift the patient out of bed, but instead of having, you know, four patients that they have to get out of bed every morning, they now have eight patients that they get out of bed every morning and the machine doesn't help you do it that much faster. So I think that, you know, there, there is this sort of, um, increased idea that technology is coming and is going to, you know, sort of take away people's livelihoods. And that's both a good and a bad thing, or that it could it has the ability to be a good or a bad thing. And so some folks who think it has the ability to be a good thing think, well, one of the ways to make it a good thing is if we make sure that people aren't just thrown into poverty, because, you know, there are fewer jobs in the world, and there's just less income for people
0: what is, if there is any, the labor movement sort of history with basic income? And how does that connect with labor advocacy or labor's lack of advocacy for other sort of universal social programs like universal health care or social security, something like that?
3: My sense is that in some other parts of the world, the labor movement has been more on board with universal basic income than they are in the United States. I think that in the United States, there hasn't been a huge movement of the labor movement towards things that aren't, you know, paying more money for doing work, right, or in some ways, you know, getting better benefits or things like that. So I do feel like in at least in the US, this the, the hard thing for folks to wrap their minds around is the labor movement is about having work with dignity. It's about having fair pay for people at work. It's not about the rest of society necessarily. There are some unions that see their role in the, you know, in the progressive movement differently than that. But by and large, we have had a labor movement in the US that's really much more focused on like workplace advocacy than it is on fixing the bigger, you know, part of the world. Um, obviously, there's like huge exceptions to that, you know, folks from the UAW were deeply involved in the civil rights movement. And I'm not trying to to say that no one has any activism that isn't workplace activism. But I do think that there is a part of this that it doesn't fit quite right with people's idea of what the labor movement is supposed to be about in the U.S.
0: Yeah. 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 I'm just wondering, because like we have saw, you know, sort of in the past, labor, for instance, didn't push for universal health care. I'm talking the, the fairly distant past, not the recent past because it would take away the value that they could provide to workers. And so it's been an interesting, yeah. and we've seen that shift in recent years, right? Labor did get on board with even the minimum reform. wage. I mean, there's opposition to the minimum right. wage. Yeah. And so we've seen that change. I wonder if you see that changing much from where you are.
3: I feel like it's not the labor movement people that are the most interested in this. When I write about it, I feel like, The people who are much more interested in it are folks who are technologists. Mm
1: -hmm. It's interesting just to think about the way this plays out culturally. Um, I think part of people's initial reaction to the term universal, they might think uh, same for everyone or they might equate universality with sameness. And I think you know maybe in our American culture that might chafe against some notions of individuality and and uh, you know maybe uh, you know just differences that that we actually tend to value um, because our workforce is so fraught with inequalities um, racial gender um, you know class all these sorts of social disparities um, do you see the UBI as perhaps a, a tool to address those inequalities because right I mean I think that in its most defensible position
3: universal basic income would go to everyone right so like you're one of the Waltons you're gonna get the same check as every other person in the United States of America and you're also gonna get I, I would assume in order to make it like a fundable program taxed at a higher level than everyone else so if you're sitting on several billion dollars worth of inherited wealth you might be expected to redistribute that to other folks who aren't sitting on a billion dollars worth of inherited wealth Yet you shouldn't be, you know, just like accepted from having basic income if you are wealthy, because A, it would not just be politically more difficult to pass. I think if it was targeted only to the folks at the sort of lower end of the socioeconomic scale and B, some people are still going to have to work no one that I talk to thinks we're headed for a future in which we'll all be lounging around eating bonbons all day and no one will ever have to work for a living again. People will still want to work in order to have more things than what they might be able to, you know, live on with just basic income. But I think the point of basic income, at least from my perspective, is everyone should have sort of a a baseline that's like sustainability,
1: and I guess uh, I'm just wondering how that would ultimately be determined. We talk about a lot in this program, these sort of pernicious effects of uh, like this whole idea of means tested programs, right? How, you know, differentiating between human needs can have a really bad effect on society um, in terms of how we relate to each other and how we see people who are less fortunate. Um, right. Does UBI kind of help maybe move towards uh, equalizing some of that or at least ensuring that, you know, there's some sort of, shared not just um you know shared benefit but also like shared sacrifice i mean i think that it does need to
3: be sort of cast as an equalizer and it's much more believable to me that like a society that already has more equality baked in right now will be first to pass a universal basic income it is not going to be the united states with our extremely mythic belief in American individualism, that it's going to be the country that leads the way on this particular topic, I don't think. But I do think that it is conceivable that, you know, we could get to a place where people say, yeah, we want, we're not saying that, like, you shouldn't be able to go out and work hard and and earn more money if you have to. But we also shouldn't be in a place where, you know, it's literally impossible for children who grow up in poor communities to get ahead. And we were pretty close to that in this country. I mean, there's, you know, a recent study about income mobility that came out, obviously right after the uh, Freddie Gray incident in Baltimore, where it showed that, you know, Baltimore was of the biggest 100 cities in the country, the the city that it was the hardest for a kid that grew up in poverty to move out of poverty. And I don't think that most Americans want that to be the case. Uh, That does that sort of, Defies our myth too, right? The the myth of America is that you're supposed to be able to get ahead, no matter how poor you start out, and I don't think that most people believe that that's possible anymore. Right, and I I think we
1: can empirically demonstrate that it kind of isn't for most. Right, exactly. Um, And and just to circle back really quickly to um, you mentioned this earlier, but um, the whole incentives argument. how do you wrestle with, the, you know, the, the criticism that this is a disincentive to innovate or, um, you know, it diminishes people's competitive willpower? And- well, I mean, I think that the system that we have set up right now
3: discourages people from being innovative, right? Like if you literally have to work, you know, 50 hours a week at the minimum wage in order to just pay your rent and like keep subsistence level food on your table every day, How much creative energy do you actually have left at that end of that 50 hours? I would argue you don't have a lot, right? I mean, I think that people have creative energy when they're doing creative things and when they're, you know, feel somewhat relaxed about life. I don't do my best work when I'm like working 60 hours a week. I'm like then just trying to sort of bounce between like things to just make sure that they're all getting done. But it's not my most creative work by any means. And I'm not somebody who's also doing that at the same time that I'm like trying to worry about like, oh, do I pay the light bill this month? Or do I pay my phone bill? Or what am I going to skip in order to like, be able to have a little money left to pay for daycare or whatever. I don't think that we have a system right now that is actually encouraging innovation from every member of our society.
0: Switching gears from the right-wing critique to the left-wing critique um, (laughs) because there are people certainly on the left who have argued that because Richard Nixon proposed a version of a basic income, uh, Milton Friedman was an advocate of a version of a basic income, that it's a right-wing plot. Um, Also, sort of more realistically, um, right-wing advocates of basic income do in fact sort of want to replace the entire welfare state with just cutting checks to people. Um, So how do we answer those arguments and make sure that we keep important parts of the social safety net intact? While the transition is
3: going on. Right. Right. I mean, I think that's a very challenging question. And I wish that I had a good answer for it. I don't you know, I, I don't think that the that the answer is like just let's get rid of Social Security and let's get rid of Medicare and let's get rid of all of these other popular programs and then just like write people a check for $10,000 a year or something like that. I mean, that doesn't seem like it's going to be a solution where that will end well for most people. Um, It does seem like, you know, a solution that kind of will continue to pit people against each other because you'll have the sort of people who are like, well, I need to go out and work so that I can earn more than my $10,000 a year. And then will continue to have a kind of right-wing narrative about how, like, well, why are you working to, like, so this other person doesn't have to go to work? So I think that, to some degree, it's really... Th- this is where you kind of get into the weeds of, like, what are you talking about when you say basic income in the sustainability index? Like, who gets to decide what is a reasonable amount of income for a person to get right. in the, you know, in, a, in the course of a year? Um, and, uh, frankly, I think that honestly, is like a debate that's not worth having until we get to the point where, <laughs> yeah. where yeah. we actually agree that we're going to do it.
0: Right. But it gets interesting because there are, there are parts of the safety net that you think that, you know, could be replaced by a basic income, like food stamps and unemployment benefits, right? Mm. That this would, in fact, sort of take up those and take out the means testing part of them. But then, right, things like health care, because you know, I am relatively healthy right now, knock on wood, and don't need healthcare. And somebody who has, you know, stage three cancer right now would be spending all of their money. Right. So right. it's an interesting, becomes an interesting thought experiment really quickly, I guess.
1: Right. And the, the whole idea of, you know, what happens when we start rationing healthcare over the whole healthcare uh-huh. debate and just, you know, the idea of, uh, you know, that we have these sort of distorted concepts of scarcity of social goods, right? So it's like, I mean, I think the other thing
3: about it is that it will, in some ways, sort of upend our way of thinking about how to do work support, which is what, you know, a lot of the means tested stuff, to some degree, is like, about how do we keep, how do we make people try to find jobs or work in jobs or right. do whatever? And historically, you know, we've, I, I actually was just out leafleting this morning because in Philly we you know, passed paid sick leave this year and today is the first day that it becomes effective oh, in the city right. of Philadelphia or the first day that employers have to start tracking people's hours. So the first day workers can start accruing paid sick leave if they're eligible under the law which is a great day for 200,000 workers in Philly who lacked paid sick leave up until this point. But as our economy changes, and people have much more sort of diverse streams of income, that benefit of, you know, paid sick leave for people who have traditional jobs will start to include fewer and fewer people, right? Like we have, as I was out, you know, handing out leaflets at the subway stop this morning, there were like four or five guys who were like hack taxi drivers who were like, well, I'd, doesn't matter because I don't have a job. Right. And, you know, we have seen a shift as more and more of our economy turns towards, you know, whatever you want to call it, the gig economy, freelancing, any of that kind of stuff, the kinds of stuff that that we have done as public policy to support people in their jobs is going to affect fewer and fewer people because fewer and fewer people will have employment relationships of the kind that you can, you know, do that kind of policy around. Right. And I'm not saying that you couldn't come up with a solution for, like, how do you provide paid sick leave for people who have, who spend all of their lives as independent contractors or work in the gig economy somehow. But that's not a thing that we're really thinking about either as a movement, right? Like, we're not trying to figure out the paid sick days problem for taxi drivers who, whether they're hack taxi drivers who don't have an employer or they're independent contractors who work for a medallion company, you know.
0: Or us. Yeah, are you? <laughs>
3: right? Michelle, I mean, that's and I are both exactly right. I know. what's that right? minimum wage? Just, people don't even know what their wages are. I mean, it's yeah. it's not just a it's not just like a kind of blue collar problem, right? It's a white collar problem too, because there's all yeah. kinds of white collar freelance folk who like the flexibility, want to be able to, you know, work, be their own boss, work for themselves. But like, also, how do
1: you ever go on vacation? Yep, it's
0: an <laughs> interesting, interesting question, I'll let you know one, when right? I figure it out. Exactly, <laughs> <laughs> any day now
1: yeah uh, what you just said actually just reminded me of uh, the um obama's budget was talking about um uh, you know rolling out these new plans for uh you know subsidized child care for working parents right and and then there was this whole idea of like well, parents who are unemployed like you know they they would like childcare too, but uh, you know our whole economy, including our welfare system, right is structured around this idea that people leave to go to work and then they come home again, and like that's what their entire life revolves right. around. Um, right. And if you work
3: at home for yourself, like how do you, you know, you might need childcare for that, too, because I mean, I'm a lucky per, I mean, I'm not lucky. I won't say lucky, but I, my, I am now at the age where my kids are old enough that I don't need to worry about where, you know, them having a babysitter all the time. They can stay by themselves for two hours. But I spent a lot of time working at home when they were little and I sent them to daycare because I was like, <laughs> I'm doing the work. I need to do actual work. I'm not you know, my job isn't parenting. Um, I mean, that's my responsibility as their mother to parent them. But, like, I was, like, in order to complete my responsibilities to my employer, I need to not have, like, a three-year-old and a seven-year-old, like, tugging on my, you know, sleeve every six seconds to ask for something. So they went to after-school programs and they went to daycare and stuff like that because – that's what I needed them to do so that I could do my work, even though I worked at home.
1: Right. I mean, not even, though. I mean, it, you, you were working. Right? right? I mean, you know, um, and again, it goes back to that question of sort of unwaged labor. Right. Um, one question I had as we think about the term universe, how do you kind of apply this to a globalized economy? Um, you know, we're used to thinking of income levels um, being assessed within the borders of one country. Right. Or within one kind of uh, space. Specified economy, um, but if we are going really universal, I mean, globalized is as universal as you can get, right? So, uh, are we talking about like <laughs> one world income or something? I mean, is it, how, how does it work in in you know in a in an economy where the boundaries are increasingly fluid and and you know there and yet we still have these huge inequalities across countries.
3: Yeah, that is a really interesting question. I would say the universe is probably the true universal. But since we haven't discovered intelligent life anywhere else yet, maybe (laughs) not yet. Hold on to the global definition. But but I I I will be honest with you. I haven't seen a lot of folks like talking or writing about that, how to do basic income across borders, although I, I do assume that, you know, as countries start to establish it, it will become a topic of conversation. Yeah. It feels like we're far enough out from any country establishing it yet that that sort of problem hasn't occurred to most folks.
1: Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah, it's, oh, there are so many. We could keep talking about this all day. But so is anybody in the US organizing around this right now as either part of a labor campaign or a political campaign? Um, how can listeners who are now convinced that basic income is the best thing ever get involved? uh you know i'm not aware
3: of any uh political organizations in the us that have taken this on as like a ma- massive national campaign um yet i do know yet exactly yes. uh, as of today i do <laughs> any day now i think actually if people are really interested in this topic some of the best conversation about it and is actually on reddit there's a there's a subreddit for basic income that i would encourage people to go Check out, and if you're um, not a Reddit user, maybe you get folks can put up a link for this or yeah, something we'll put a to, link to people on your podcast on the web. But but I, I do feel like that you know that this is a thing that gets talked about a little bit. I mean, in the tech press that I read, I I, I mean, I said earlier, I feel like this is a techno that technologists are more interested or talking about this than labor people. And I think it's partly because technologists, whether they're, you know, software or hardware, people just see so much more automation coming down the pike than the rest of us do, who aren't, you know, sort of focused on that in our day-to-day lives. And that they're the folks who you know, will occasionally like write op eds about how it's time for basic income, which you would sort of expect to be coming out of maybe the labor movement or other social justice movements. And instead, it's coming from people in the technology community who are sort of saying like, hey, our whole world is about disruption. And we're trying to disrupt jobs. And all of our friends are working in other companies that are trying to disrupt jobs. So like, we see that the, that this sort of tsunami of of uh, job disruption is coming. Maybe we should think about what we're going to do with all of the humans at the end. And obviously that's picked up a little bit more in the last, I want to say, year, year and a half, as there's been also going on a lot of organizing by more traditional like economic justice campaigners and labor unions, particularly aimed at Silicon Valley. Yeah. Um, there have been, you know, obviously people doing organizing of, the shuttle drivers for Facebook and folks like that. And uh, the Teamsters and SEIU have both done a lot of work to sort of force Silicon Valley to deal with the poverty that they're creating in their own geographic area. But they aren't saying like, oh, so Facebook should have universal basic income in Santa Clara County or anything like that, that I've heard. They're saying, you know, you should be more fair. Um, But I think that those, those folks, the technologists tend to be, more receptive to this. I think it also appeals to, you know, there's a certain left libertarian bent that exists in that community more than in the general public, I think. And, and it also has an appeal to those folks too,
1: yeah,
3: or to that ideology.
1: Yeah. Um, I was going to say, are there any um, are there any thinkers outside of the U.S. who are dealing with this more um, directly? Um, I, maybe I'm naive. I just figured people in Europe would be more up on this than they are in the U.S.
3: Yeah. Uh, You know, I can't tell you the names of specific individuals off the top of my head. I do. I mean, I feel like the Scandinavian countries tend to have people who are thinking about this a little bit more. Um, Like I said earlier, Podemos is talking about this in Spain. It does feel to me like some of the countries that are more set up as social democracies than the U.S. is are trending in this direction, although nobody has, like, figured it out all the way yet.
1: Yeah, I think Switzerland tried to have that sort of referendum on uh... that. That's right. Since you were talking about the technology community and people who are thinking
0: about this, um, to wrap up, tell us about your blog, Hack the Union, and your excellent newsletter, which I have talked about many times on this podcast before. Um, I think it's fascinating that you're urging the labor movement to really innovate and deal with the future of work rather than attempt to go back to this perceived golden age that really wasn't a golden age for all of us to begin with.
3: Right. I mean, one of the things that I always say to people is like, look, we won. It took the labor movement 200 years to win the eight hour day from the day that we, you know, sort of, sort of that started being a campaign to the day, that at least in the U.S. till the, when it became a law in the U.S. It was almost 200 years. And I think, you know, we still in many ways have have a labor movement that is set up to fight against the Industrial Revolution. So we made a specific bunch of demands to employers at the time of the industrial revolution wh- which you know was in some ways very different than now for lots of blue collar workers the thing that was happening then was that employers were trying to kill them with with work right they were like you know the point of the 8 hour day was that we people were at work for 12 hours a day and 15 hours a day and they didn't have time to do anything else yeah. and it wasn't just that they were being forced to be at work. It was that they were being paid wages that meant that they had to work 15, 12 or 15 hours a day in order to make ends meet. And so the demand of, you know, sort of eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours for what you will, that kind of came out of that was in reaction to a specific thing that employers were trying to do at that time. At this time, I think that we're in a different moment, particularly for blue collar workers. I think that we have this kind of weird dichotomy going on where there are lots of white collar workers who are still who still feel like they're being killed with overwork, right? Like, you know, you have email, your employer expects you to answer email, even when you're not at the office, we have, you know, I just had a story on my blog this week about a woman who got fired because she took a tracking app off her phone, because she wasn't she was okay with her employer tracking her when she was at work. But she was like, it's not fair for you to track me when I'm not on the clock, which yeah. I think most people think is reasonable. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yet, at the same time, we're also seeing that like many, many, many service workers are being told by their employers, we don't need you 40 hours a week. In fact, we may only need you 20 hours this week and maybe only 15 hours the week after that and maybe only 12 hours the week after that. But then the week after that, we'll be back to 25, right? Like We have these scheduling horror stories that you're starting to hear more and more of. And at the same time, those workers have... By and large, I, this has changed recently because of the fast food campaign and other retail organizing that's been going on. But they've had like flat wages for two decades, practically, because the minimum wage hasn't gone up. Their employers haven't felt labor pressure that's made them raise wages even without the government telling them that they had to. the, the sort of point of Hack the Union is let's figure out how to center the. The labor movement and economic justice around the demands that employers are making on us now, and not continue to fight the fights that the labor movement was having to fight during the industrial revolution. Because the digital revolution is different, and we should have different demands. And we might not win those demands. Like, I don't think basic income is a thing that we'll win in my lifetime. I hope that we'll win it in my kids' lifetime. Maybe we won't. But people who started the eight hour day movement didn't necessarily start it thinking, like, we're going to win eight hour day tomorrow they knew that it would take a long time but if if we don't ever start it then we're never going to win it if we don't ever have it as a demand it's never going to be a thing that we can win
1: and that was katie sip of the hack the union blog talking about universal bonbon income i mean basic income
0: (laughs) you're listening to belabored a dissent magazine podcast links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at dissentmagazine.org
1: and now it's time for arg! i wish i'd written that the part of the show where we talk about the things we have read recently that we wish we had written but alas did not well this past
0: week was mother's day and for this week the piece that i wish i'd written was by friend of the podcast sheila bappett who is also the author of an excellent book about domestic worker organizing The piece was at RH Reality Check. It was called The Mother's Day Myth, How We Thank Moms for Their Free Labor. And, you know, John Oliver got a lot of attention this week for saying that really valuing moms would mean through policies like paid family leave. Somewhat typical that when a man says what women have been saying for years, it gets lots of cheers and applause. Sorry, John. But before his show aired, friend of the podcast Sheila Bappett had written this piece reminding us that flowers or a card hardly make up for all the unpaid labor that moms and the world's women who are parents or not parents do every day. She writes, quote, Gifts fueled by a corporatized holiday belie the myth of Mother's Day, the idea that by giving a present once a year, we are actually valuing the unending work of parenting labor. Gifts from a child or spouse are sweet, but on a broader level, a genuine celebration of mom's labor would be if our society ensured her Economic security, something mothers have very little of in today's economy. Indeed, parenting labor, which sadly persists as, quote, women's work, is granted no economic value, nor is much of the work mothers are engaging in outside of the home. Women, of course, still do the vast majority of housework, even when they also work for wages. We cook, we clean, we care, and yet the U.S. lags behind the rest of the industrialized world. Do I sound like a broken record yet? When it comes to policies that might help mothers, parents, Basically all of us. Family leave is a distant dream. Lots of pregnant workers just want to be able to sit down or drink some water on the job. Meanwhile, the fastest growing jobs in the country are jobs like the home care work I discussed earlier, which are done overwhelmingly by women, paid sometimes less than minimum wage, and forget about any sort of overtime. As Bappet writes, a bouquet of flowers is no match for economic security through paid family leave, higher wages, stronger benefits, and an economy that genuinely values women.
1: Ah, Speaking of unwaged labor, my pick for this show is called Four Myths About the Freelance Class. It appears in Jacobin and is written by Sarah Gray, who is a writer, uh, self identified freelancer who has been thinking about how she is classified as a worker. Um, She starts with the question, what separates a freelancer from the proletariat? Why are freelancers encouraged to think of themselves as independent small business owners or independent contractors rather than as workers? And who gains from their classification as members of the petty bourgeoisie instead of as members of what we might call the working class today? And she writes, Compounding the confusion over how to understand and identify class in modern capitalism is the fact that freelancers, whose numbers have exploded in recent decades, are ideologically constructed as part of the petty bourgeoisie, albeit the bottom rung, despite selling their labor for wages and often living hand-to-mouth without access to health care or other benefits, a sort of precarer bourgeoisie. So, with that term in mind uh, it's interesting to think about the ideology that is uh, freighted in uh, in the term you know uh, self employed right What does it mean to be a self employed worker as opposed to a wage worker or a staff member? And, you know, when we stop thinking about ourselves as workers, how does that change the way we view work and our relationship to our jobs? Does it encourage us to be more assertive in terms of our rights and our uh, ability to, uh, you know, wield power over the workplace? Or does it just, uh, you know, destroy any sense of class consciousness at all and lead to uh, people being in situations where they're easily exploited by others? And uh, she goes through these four myths, sort of um ticking off you know the the many ways in which. Um, freelance workers are sort of deceived into thinking that they are non-workers. So first, of course, is the we're not workers myth. And so, um, you know, much of the uh, today's working class is actually not aware that they're really working class because they've been socialized to think of the working class as, you know, men wearing denim overalls, carrying hammers and working in a factory on an assembly line, when in reality today's proletariat, also known as the uh, precariat in many cases, um, doesn't do any of those things, and yet they are very much working uh, often for poverty wages in extremely precarious conditions. And it's actually that hardship, it's that struggle that defines what working class is and not so much the nature of the work you do or the type of profession or skill that you perform. Um, and there's also the creative class myth, which says that people like uh, quote artists and writers are creative. Some straddle the line between creativity and more often straightforward corporate production, as say translators, editors, and copywriters. Other perform others perform non-creative t- tasks like childcare, sex work, surrogate childbearing, or housekeeping. Um, all of these are different forms of casualized and often unwaged labor that kind of. Um, you know, doesn't really count what people are doing on a day-to-day basis as real work, and that leads to all sorts of vulnerabilities. Um, Then there's the free will myth, saying that people must do this voluntarily, because of course they love what they do, and we've talked about the whole love what you do myth here, and uh, unbelabored many times before but suffice it to say the in exchange for freedom, workers often go without benefits and other labor protections and that's no way to live at all. And finally, the no class consciousness myth which says that freelancers don't have any class consciousness because they work in diffuse workplaces and are atomized from each other, when in reality what's really lacking is different ways of organizing each other across vast expanses of space um, and until we think of a new model, we might as well start to think of ourselves as workers, at least on our own. That is all
0: for episode 77 of Descent Magazine's Belabored podcast. I will be not back in two weeks as I will be, uh, oh my God, working on a big chunk of my book, but Michelle will be here holding down the fort. As we noted, send us information if you are in Missouri paying attention to this right to work fight. If you are a worker in home care or in a nail salon, we would love to hear from you. If you are interested in the basic
1: income or if you have an idea for how to make it work. If you have an UDI idea work. for how to make it
0: work. Or if you have been somewhere where one a version of one has been passed. If you're we, in Alaska, let us know if you how it's in Alaska. Working. We would love to How's hear about it. it. Out for you. you can always tweet at us at hashtag belabored, email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. <laughs> Be back
1: soon. This life is so go. You've been
0: listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Until next week, join us online using hashtag belabored.